And we are making great progress. We're in chapter 41 this morning, 41 of 66. We're well on our way. And uh, today's passage fits in nicely with last week's passage. It's a continuation. There's no major shifts in tone or messaging. So we can dig right in. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're in Isaiah 41, which I believe in your pew Bible is page 601. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first and with the last. I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with a hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldiering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, Yahweh, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, a new sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in Yahweh, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. 
I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, that what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And would you pray for the preaching of the word with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word this morning. I pray that you would please bless us, that you would please help us to believe and to hold fast to your promises for us. Amen. So I love courtroom dramas, don't you? To Kill a Mockingbird, Perry Mason, A Few Good Men. What I love is that it's a perfect setting for a showdown. The facts are clearly laid out and acknowledged. Context is established. All parties are identified. The rules are clear and fair. Order is maintained. The stakes are high. Lives are in the balance. And more importantly, justice. And it all comes down to the drama of the argumentation, the case. That's how it is in the John Grisham books anyways. In real life, the courts don't always work out that way. I mean, if we're honest, how do we feel when that notice comes in the mail that we've been called to serve on jury duty? We're not exactly excited. As much as we crave justice, we're pretty terrible at delivering it. The courts can be like an auction house where deals are struck to keep the backlog of cases to a minimum. Meanwhile, the guilty sometimes go free for lack of resources, resources to prosecute them. And the poor, the vulnerable, well, they're 
all too often too quickly convicted, regardless of circumstances. Well, chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah has us sitting in the public gallery of a courtroom to take in the proceedings. But this isn't a courtroom quite like the others. God wants to ensure that the truth prevails. So he himself sits as prosecutor, witness, judge, and jury. So you know there will be no shenanigans in this particular courtroom. So what is the case that we're hearing this morning? Well, God is going to establish who has authority over the history of the nations. We'll unpack that a little bit to see why it's important. But in fact, this is the continuation of what God was doing last week, if you remember Isaiah 40. We're continuing the message that God commissioned to the preacher to be shared with his people, a message of comfort for his people. That was back in chapter 40. Now in chapter 41, we're putting that message of comfort to the test. Can we trust it? And if so, what is it that backs up this guarantee? The guarantee that Isaiah wants to establish for this promise of comfort is God's nature as sovereign over the history of the nations. So to accomplish this, he's going to put the nations on trial, the nations who would claim that they have authority over their own history. God is going to debunk this and make the case that he alone has that authority. That's in the first section of our passage, the prosecution of the nations. We'll see that verses 1 through 7. Then God grants a recess to the courtroom proceedings from verses 8 to 20 to confer with his people, with Israel. And in this section, God is going to paint three different pictures of comfort for us. He's going to make clear what this comfort looks like. Then the court is back in session from verses 21 to 29, and we'll hear from one more witness before God renders his judgment. Or rather, one more witness will be called to the stand. We'll see if we actually hear anything from them. So that will be section three, the nations call their idols for the defense. But let's get started. First section, court is in session. God, the prosecutor, poses his questions to the nations. Who rules the history of the nations? It's important to establish who is in control of history because so much of what we've read in the book of Isaiah in terms of what happened historically between all these warring nations, in terms of what was about to happen imminently for Judah, and in terms of what ultimately is going to happen for all the nations, all of this is a matter for the history books. That's where it's all documented. So who is the author of the authoritative history of the world? May it please the court... I would like to enter into evidence. Exhibit A, history of the nation of Israel. Its founding father, Abraham, lived about 2,000 years before Christ. And it wasn't until after the Exodus in 1444 BC that his descendants, led by Moses, defined the territorial boundaries of that nation. 
And it was under the leadership of Joshua that they entered into that land. In approximately 1000 BC, their greatest earthly king ruled Israel, King David. And sadly, under the rule of his grandson, Rehoboam, the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. That was in about 930 B.C. Isaiah was called into ministry about 740 B.C., and his ministry spanned several decades. The northern kingdom of Israel fell and was taken into exile by Assyria in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom of Judah fell and was taken into exile by Assyria in 587 B.C. You might have thought that that was it, that that was the end of the history of Israel. But you see, in 538 B.C., about 200 years after Isaiah went into ministry for the first time, something remarkable happened. But honestly, the history books should have a spoiler alert on that particular date, especially for all of us who are still making our way through the book of Isaiah. So here's the heart of the case. Who is in control of that history and the history of all other nations? Who is dictating their history? The defendants would have you believe that they are each in control over their own destiny. It's all just a matter of survival of the fittest. Strong kings lead strong nations with strong armies over weak kings who lead weak armies for weak nations. Their case rests on the belief that there's no master plan, no universal authority, just natural selection. The power goes to those with the strength, the wits, the resources. If this is the case, then there's no hope for Israel. It's been 400 years since the glory days of King David, and ever since then they've been caught in a downward spiral. They've been broken, shattered, and then scattered, and there's nothing but a few shards left spread across Assyria and Babylon. They're well on their way to extinction already on the critically endangered list. And so, by extension, if you follow the logic of the nations, there's no hope for any of God's people on this side of the cross either. If you believe that the world is run by Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and Joe Biden, and that our only hope rests in Justin Trudeau, I'm sorry, Maple Avenue Baptist Church. I don't like our ch chances. And to be honest, this isn't even a dig at our prime minister. We would be no better off if our prime minister was the toughest, shrewdest, meanest guy out there. But you see the implication, right? If God is not sovereign over the nations and all any of this comes down to is the geopolitical interests of a handful of world leaders, there's no hope. But pause for a second to consider. Consider their claim. What can the nations accomplish? Apart from gathering to play soccer in a giant stadium built by slaves, put that aside for now. What is 
their most ambitious cooperative initiative. Arguably the United Nations. They were man's greatest attempt at bringing justice to the nations. And so how is that working out? The countries with the worst human rights records run the Human Rights Council. The nations that don't allow women to have driver's licenses run the Commission on the Status of Women. And the most genocidal countries out there run the War Crimes Commission. Sad, twisted joke. If the nations are in control, we're doomed. So we better hear what the prosecutor has to say, and it better be good. So, verse 1, the prosecutor invites the nations to take the stand. He calls for quiet in the court. In verse 2, and then he repeats it in verse 4, he asks, Who? Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Well, first, before we determine who stirred him up, can we establish who this conqueror from the East is? Well, that's where we have the advantage of being able to turn to the history books. Because although Isaiah is prophesying this about 2,700 years ago, it has already occurred by now. Isaiah is speaking of Cyrus, the Persian king of the territory of modern-day Iran, definitely to the East, East for you guys. Whoever stirred him from his slumber has awakened a sleeping giant. But at Isaiah's time, he's not born yet. So back to God, the prosecutor's question. Who sends out conquerors? Whose purposes do they serve? What do we make of their victories? In essence, who really rules the world? The second time he asked this question, in verse 4, he clarifies a little bit by asking, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? Whoever is in control has been the one in control from the very beginning. And he answers, from the beginning all the way to the end, it has always been and will always be God who is in control. This is the only answer that gives us any comfort at all. We are comforted in knowing we have always been and always will be in the palm of his hand. He always was and always will be sovereign over the entirety of our lives and everything around us. So no matter what you're going through, God has you. He wants you to turn to him. We'll see in a bit how that happens in the second section. But for now, God rounds on the defendants and lets us know the truth about them. In verses 5 to 7, he asks, if not God, then who? The nations of man. Where were the nations while he was on the throne? Cowering, trembling, trying to band together and encourage themselves, each other on as they built their own metal idols? No. Man is ruled by fear. If fear is their master, they cannot be self-autonomous. They have no self-governance. They submit to their master, and their master is fear. The nations of man build themselves idols, congratulate themselves for them, but they can't do anything. These idols are useless. 
You can try this for yourselves if you'd like at home. Go ahead and pull up any one of your favorite idols and ask them to promise you what God is promising. Pull up your bank account. Ask it to promise you your money will never abandon you. Even if a recession hits, if you get laid off, if you get sick and go in on disability. Stand outside your home and ask it to promise you it will never abandon you. Ask your home to promise you you'll never be alone. Even after your kids move out, your spouse passes away. Take out your business card and ask it to promise you it will always give you a, self, uh, a feeling of satisfaction, of identity. Even if you get fired, even if your company goes bankrupt, our idols are dumb. They have nothing to say. They make no promises. They have no power, no control, only what we project onto them. Not so with God, and he is going to restate some of these promises of comfort in our second section here. So the court takes a, a quick recess to address this question. What are God's promises to Israel amidst this tumult of these warring nations? Isaiah gives three pictures of God's promised comfort to Israel. And... Um, I mean, none of them are particularly flattering. We'll see he compares his people to a servant, to a worm, and then to a poor wretch lost in the desert. The, the first painting, we'll call it the servant of a great master who shares in his master's victory. This is the first portrait, verses 8 through 13. Each one of them are hard pills to swallow. We don't like to think of ourselves in this way. It's not flattering at all. We have a low view of servants. We hate power imbalances. We want our children to grow up to live in the penthouse, not to work as the doorkeeper. And we have a low view of the powerful as well. But this, this is a picture of a great and righteous master. So perhaps it's helpful to think of VE Day. When the Allies formally accepted Germany's unconditional surrender, the victory did not exclusively belong to the top general of the Allied forces who made the German high command sign the act of military surrender. No. No matter your rank, whether you were British, French, American, Canadian, it was your victory. Whether you were Winston Churchill himself, Charles de Gaulle, any military general, down to the lowest private in the most inexperienced battalion, it was your victory. The celebrations filled the streets from Piccadilly Circus to the Champ de Mars and Times Square, every little village. Because when your commander-in-chief declares victory, you don't keep fighting. You lay down your arms and you join in the celebrations. 
God's victory belongs to each and every one of his servants. We serve a loving God. No good thing will he withhold from the one who walks uprightly. It's the Lord's victory. We have only to serve him and let him win. And his greatest victory was accomplished on our behalf by his son Jesus on the cross when he died for our sins. He vanquished sin and death. So we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death as our own. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord grants us the victory and we get this pledge from God. In verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Next time someone sends you this as an encouragement, remember the context. It is so much richer than even they imagine at the time. We are like the people of Israel in exile. We too are sojourners in this foreign land. But do not be dismayed. Do not be afraid. This is just the world we live in for now. It's not our home. God will not leave us here. He will empower us on our way home. He will lead us there. And he will ensure nothing prevents us from making it home. In our serving God, he empowers us. And that becomes even more apparent in the second picture. The second portrait, verses 14 to 16. The triumphant worm who conquers the mountain range. We just saw in verse 10, I mean, just a remarkable verse. But I kind of want verse 14 on a coffee mug now. If you're not, you worm. I think I would drink out of that. That's maybe just me. So I'm torn a little bit with this picture that Isaiah paints for us because I want to tell you that it reminds me of a play by Victor Hugo called Riblas about a servant who falls in love with a queen of Spain. And in his lament and his heartbreak, he compares himself to a worm in love with a star. I'm torn because I want to tell you that, but it actually reminds me much more of a movie called Turbo. Some of you have seen Turbo. It is the most ridiculous kids' movie I've ever had to sit through from an era when the boys were a lot younger. It's so dumb. I have to read you the official synopsis because otherwise you'll think I'm making it up. Turbo tells the inspirational story of Theo, voiced by Ryan Reynolds. A garden snail living in California who dreams of becoming the greatest racer in the world. He's obsessed with speed and wants to race in the Indianapolis 500, a race only for cars with human drivers. So you see his predicament. <laughs> it's a really, really silly example. But, I mean, we are gripped from a very early age with tales of the most unlikely people accomplishing the most extraordinary things. From the little engine that could, the tortoise and the hare, and, of course, the little hobbit who takes on Mordor. 
we sometimes think of them as David and Goliath tales. Because God has put it on our hearts that it's not our physical abilities that count, but our faith in God. And this is the kind of longing that those who do not follow Christ misinterpret completely. They misdirect that faith and make it about faith in themselves. That's why they give the terrible advice that they do to their children. You can be whatever you want as long as you believe in yourself. When our faith is placed in God, we know there is nothing he cannot accomplish on our behalf. So we submit to him and align our will with his will and his purposes. But these tales are ridiculous if they omit the most important ingredient. Like trying to bake bread without yeast. These stories make no sense. They don't rise. Without God, the underdog has no hope. The servant doesn't get the queen. David doesn't have a shot at taking down Goliath. With God. Anything is possible, even a worm of a nation faced with an impassable mountain of an oppressor can be given what it needs to plow the mountain down to a plain. Through prayer, Mark 11 records Jesus saying, have faith in God truly. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. The Lord empowers the powerless to achieve his purposes. Even our salvation through faith in him, in God, as we see in the third picture. Portrait number three, verses 17 to 20, the oasis. A lowly, and downtrodden wretch in exile in the wilderness, starving and thirsty. But in God, this wretch is granted water and shade from this beautiful bouquet of trees. To Isaiah's audience who are in exile in Babylon, this is a bit on the nose, but it's also just an incredible promise of respite. And for all of us who are in exile in this world, we find the same promise in Christ. John 4 says, Whoever drinks of the water that Jesus will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that Jesus will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Lord provides for the needy. He empowers the weak. He does not abandon those who humbly turn to him for salvation. These are the promises he locks in. And if he is the one on the throne, if he is the one who is sovereign over this world, then you can count on these promises. If he, says, he is who he says he is, then you can anchor your hope in these promises and nothing can break them. He is bound to you by the strength of an unbreakable bond, his word. But only if God is, in fact, sovereign over the world. So the court case resumes. 
It needs to find conclusive evidence for a verdict. Section 3, the nations mount their defense. Verses 21 to 24. The idols of the world are invited to the stand. In fact, the idolaters are commanded to bring forth their idols to testify. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your proofs. They seem reluctant. Since they are so quick to congratulate themselves on having constructed these idols, let's put them to the test and see. We've established the important point that this case hinges on. Who is in charge of the history of the world? But how exactly can you prove that you are in control of the events? Because anyone can claim after the fact, yeah, I, I meant for that to happen. I really meant for that ball to go in. I just wanted a little bit more of a challenge, right? That's easily said. So what's the best way to prove you actually meant it? That you were actually in control all along? I'll tell you how it worked when I was in university and I was playing pool. You had to call the shot. It could be the last ball on the table, and it could be sitting on the lip of the pocket, and you could hit it directly in. If you didn't call that shot, it didn't count. Obviously, any of the trickier shots, I mean, if you were going to do a bank shot or deep cut into the pocket, you better call that. No one would ever give you the benefit of the doubt. Calling it ahead was the only way for anyone to believe that you actually meant it and that you weren't just randomly bashing balls around, hoping, hoping for one of them to drop. And that's a fairly universal truth. If you want people to believe you intended the result, you need to predict what you're going to bring about ahead of time. And that's why the question in verse 22 and 23 matters. Can the idols call their shots? Can they predict the future? Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. But of course they have no answer. So God concludes, behold, you're, you're nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Don't be an abomination. Don't put your trust in your idols. Don't count on your bank account to always be there for you. Don't put your worth and your identity into what your business card says. Don't count on your house to provide companionship. Verses 25 to 29, God takes the stand. It's an unusual move for the prosecutor to take the witness stand himself, but God is going to give his own testimony. Verse 26, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? No one else could do it, but he is calling it. Earlier, he spoke of the conqueror from the east, Cyrus. 
Now look at verse 25. The conqueror from the north. Who is this conqueror from the north? It's Cyrus, the Persian king. The Persian conqueror Cyrus the Great will conquer Babylon. And the history books document he both originated from the east and descended on Babylon from the north. Isaiah is predicting this will happen, even though it was written before it occurred. This prophecy is recorded here and is confirmed later in the history books. God can and did predict this very historical event. The conquest of Babylon by Cyrus is locked in, demonstrated in his history books. He even goes so far as to reassure his people in verse 27 that this invader will come to give good news. That good news is also confirmed in the history books. King Cyrus, after all, is given the nickname Cyrus the Great. He took over Babylon and, in fact, ruled over the largest empire that had ever been conquered at that time. And during his reign, Cyrus issued a decree. And that decree, prophesied here by Isaiah and also prophesied later by the prophet Jeremiah, would finally be proclaimed and recorded by Ezra in 538 BC, over a century later. So if you'd like, we could turn to Ezra 1. In Ezra 1, right, starting in verse 1, we read, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, could also have said of Isaiah, might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and God, with good, gold and with goods, and with beasts besides freewill offerings from the house of God, that is, in Jerusalem. Good news indeed. The conqueror from the east and from the north, Cyrus is going to send the remnant back out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple of Yahweh. God called it ahead of time to ensure we see it happen and know that this is what he meant to happen all along. He was never abandoning his people. God called it from the beginning, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. This lineage will be protected. His people will be protected because it is his will, because it is his purpose to redeem his people to himself. 
And because he is sovereign over all the events of history and he has promised that he will accomplish this for us. God is mighty to save. This court case that is presented to us specifically set out to resolve the question, who is in charge of the history of the world? But by the end of the proceedings, we understand what is truly at stake. When we uncover the truth behind that question, the answer dismantles the largest lie that is perpetrated against mankind. The lie that the world has bought into, that they need to be strong enough to do things on their own strength. The lie that starts by being pushed onto children, generation after generation, that you can be whatever you want to be as long as you believe in yourself. It includes all the empty promises of the nations, be it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or liberté, égalité, fraternité, peace, order, and good governance. These are all in vain without God. Our nations are not able to proactively write their own entries into the history books. They can do nothing but wait and observe in their rearview mirror. That's how they'll see what was accomplished in and through their own country. Nothing more. As verse 28 and 29 tell us, those who peddle in these lies, those who put their trust in the idols of the nations are confused. They are in the dark. They have no source of hope. But not so for us. Because whether we're American or Canadian or French, we're part of any nation, we're Christian first. We serve a great master, so we know how to be brought low. We know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, we have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. Christ's victory on the cross is our victory. That's not just the good news of Cyrus. That's the good news of Christ. And we already know the fate of the nations. Out of fear, they've built their useless idols. But as Revelation 15 tells, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. See, there's a time in the future when all the history books will have been written. And at that point, all will have been revealed. She, Vlad, Joe, they'll barely have a footnote in this book. And it will be made clear to all those who are in Christ that nothing ever happened that was not according to the will of God and did not serve his purposes. The good news of Christ is that through his death and resurrection, God opened up the offer to join his people to all the nations, as he said he would from the beginning. So today, if you do not consider yourself part of the body of Christ, God has orchestrated your entire life to ensure that you are hearing these words right now. Do not turn a deaf ear, but tune into God's call for your life that he may show you how your life fits into the history of the nations. 
and his grand story of redemption. And when you turn to God in repentance and put your faith in Christ, he will show you that your name was written in the book of life before the creation of the world. And everything that was accomplished in this book, everything that Christ accomplished, he accomplished on your behalf. Because one day, we'll all take a turn in God's courtroom. We will be called to the stand. And the verdict is up to you right now. You can put in a plea of not guilty, mount your own defense based on everything you've ever done, ever accomplished. And you should know everything you ever said and thought will also be held against you. And you will be condemned. Or if you have a high enough view of the judge, you can put in a guilty plea and throw yourself at the mercy of the good judge. If you truly understand that everything that has ever happened was under the authority of our sovereign God, then you will know that your sentence has already been served. You can accept his son's sacrifice for you, and he will accept his son's righteousness as yours. That is the only chance you have to ever hear the verdict of not guilty. So let us join in with a psalmist and declare as in Psalm 84. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that none of us here would think too highly of ourselves but see that we are worms, servants of a great master, deserving of nothing more than exile, but purchased by the blood of your son for your own sake to be brought home to dwell with you forevermore. Thank you, Lord. We are grateful that you are the author of the history of the world and the author of of our salvation. Amen.